Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Tim Gilmore, author of the book Box Broken Open, The Architecture of Ted Pappas. It's remarkable that he's done as much contemporary design as he has, and that he's done as much historic restoration work as he has. We'll discuss Florida tourism and golf, Sport and health became bywords to describe the possibilities of a winner in Florida. And we'll talk with Tom Touchton about his Florida map collection. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I'm working on a building. I'm working on a building. I'm working on a building for my Architect Ted Pappas is known for his work on churches, including St. John the Divine Greek Orthodox Church and Restoration Catholic Church in Jacksonville and St. Fodio's Greek Orthodox National Shrine in St. Augustine. He's also designed libraries, schools, office buildings, and more. In addition to creating new buildings, Pappas has done extensive historic restoration work. Studying architecture in the 1950s, one of Pappas's most significant influences was Frank Lloyd Wright. Tim Gilmore is author of the new book, Box Broken Open, The Architecture of Ted Pappas. For Ted Pappas, Wright was such a, a huge influence, partly because of the phrase that gives the title to this book. Ted talks a lot about um, breaking the box open, which is a primary Wrightian kind of principle. The box being the structure, the architectural structure as it was traditionally designed. And he's always looking for ways to bend the geometry. It's really interesting to talk to him and hear how he talks about flow. A building is not a static thing. It's something that moves as you move through it. And, uh, you know, he talks about how spaces open out into other spaces, how they move. And I think all of that originates with Frank Lloyd Wright. He also talks about a structure not being on its site, but of its site. That's a primary thing, you know, looking to the location itself to determine what should come from that location instead of what should be built on top of and dominate that location. Ted Pappas was also influenced by brutalism, an architectural style that became popular in the 1950s. It's a minimalist style that exposes bare concrete and structural elements rather than focusing on decorative design. Tim Gilmore. If you look at a building like Ted Pappas's Singleton Center in the Springfield neighborhood, just north of downtown in Jacksonville, you can see how Frank Lloyd Wright and brutalism come together. So the, the brute and brutalism is French for concrete, for raw. 
there's the rawness of concrete, which even walking through the Singleton Center with, with Ted, he talks about the flow of it. And you think of concrete as this <laughs> massive, immovable thing, but you start to see it differently. You see how the whole building is built on this 30, 60 grid, and there's no square corners in this building. And you see how it moves. And instead of being this, this heavy concrete thing, like uh, you think of most parking garages or something, the Singleton Center uh, has this gracefulness of form and movement about it. Pappas was also influenced by other mid-century modern styles, not the revival architecture that was very popular in Florida. Inevitably, you see Le Corbusier, international style that really broke away from tradition from the uh, the neoclassical that was was happening. And at the turn of the 20th century, there were all of these so-called revival styles of architecture, whether it was things called colonial revival or Mediterranean revival, especially in Florida or Gothic revival, and there were just a million revivals. So I think with Le Corbusier, you had cantilevers, um, which also Frank Lloyd Wright was was doing very different things with. And uh, Pappas's Hogan's Creek Tower looks very um, Corbusian, <laughs> to use that, that adjective. Although Ted Pappas favors modern styles of architecture, he often unites ancient tradition with contemporary vision. His first solo commission was St. John the Divine Greek Orthodox Church. That was uh, built on Atlantic Boulevard in Jacksonville. And you can see, you know, the cantilevers and you can see the use of concrete. But he's also using, in, in a new form, columns that he sees going back to ancient Greek temples. Um, he's using barrel vaults that he sees in uh, lots of ancient Roman architecture. He looks forward, but always, I think, with a deep sense of tradition. And I think that's, uh, that's something that is uh, innate in his work. In addition to creating innovative new buildings like St. John the Divine and the Singleton Center, Ted Pappas has repurposed or rehabilitated historic structures throughout Jacksonville, including the oldest historically black college in Florida, the city's oldest library, the oldest private club building, the oldest high school building, and the oldest church structure. Tim Gilmore. If Ted Pappas only had done contemporary work, the work that he's done would be an incredible accomplishment in and of itself. And if he had only done historic restoration, that work that he's done would have made for an incredible career. And he's done both. That includes work on the old San Jose Hotel, which became uh, the Bulls School in Jacksonville, um, Epping Forest, historical mansion of the DuPonts in, in Jacksonville. And when you're downtown, you really could throw a baseball from one of his historic restoration projects to another. Um, and that includes um, the old St. Andrew's Church, which is one of the oldest structures downtown because it was not destroyed by the Great Fire of 1901, built in the 1880s, and now home to the Jacksonville Historical Society. Duval High School, so the first high school building, uh, the oldest high school building that survives in Jacksonville, which is now housing. The Jacksonville Free Public Library, this is one of the Carnegie libraries and is now home to a law firm. The Seminole Club, which was a 
club where politicos and prominent people met back in the day and is now a restaurant. And there are so many structures. He's worked on Edward Waters College historic structures. So um, Edward Waters being the oldest historically Black college in, in Florida. It's remarkable that he's done as much contemporary design as he has and that he's done as much historic restoration work as he has. Tim Gilmore says that despite Ted Pappas's success, he has experienced some heartbreak as an architect. For example, the restored and reimagined structure that served as Pappas's headquarters was destroyed. Really, it combined both of the impulses throughout his career in working on a historic space, but also doing something um, that was brilliant and new with it. And when Riverside Avenue was widened, when the, the state decided that they needed to widen Riverside Avenue, then that building was demolished. And he had to see this, this thing that was, uh, you know, his headquarters, but also such a big piece of his heart destroyed in front of him. Now, <laughs> the state talks about redoing Riverside Avenue again and narrowing it which is really frustrating, you know, <laughs> so that kind of heartbreak, you know, walking into some of the libraries that he's designed in Jacksonville. And when you walk in with him, he can point out all of the things that were part of the vision. And he can also talk about those parts of the vision that aren't there anymore because city and state institutions don't necessarily carry the artistic vision forward. Tim Gilmore with Mark Pappas is author of the new book, Box Broken Open, The Architecture of Ted Pappas. Gilmore will give a talk about the book at 6 p.m. on September 1st at Old St. Andrew's Church, a building restored by Ted Pappas for the Jacksonville Historical Society. It's a Holy Ghost building. It's a Holy Ghost building. It's a Holy Ghost This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. It went straight down the middle Then it started to hook just a wee wee bit And that's when my caddy lost sight of it That little white pellet has never been found to this day Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, Florida's identification with tourism is almost as old as the state itself. Certainly by Reconstruction, nationally known figures like Harriet Beecher Stowe were championing Florida as a tourist destination. From her porch, Stowe encouraged her northern friends and family to come to Florida, bring money, and enjoy the benefits of the warm, dry winter weather. Others joined her in promoting the state, and a cottage industry of Florida promotion literature thrived. Sport and health became bywords to describe the possibilities of a winter in Florida. 
And while individual Floridians and corporate tourism interests continued to issue the same invitation to come to the Sunshine State, a close reading of articles on tourism in the Florida Historical Quarterly demonstrates the ways in which the state's tourism continually reimagined and reinvented itself as it responded to national and international cultural and economic pressures. Connie, we've discussed tourism in some of our earlier conversations. What do you have for us today? Although there are many articles from which we could choose, and we will return to the topic at a later date to examine some of those other tourism topics, today we will focus on two articles by Larry R. Youngs and Scott Kingdon. Both articles share the same time period, and both examine the role of golf in defining winter tourism and the economic impact of tourism and sport. Young's 2005 article covers the period 1870 to 1930, but highlights the boom era of the 1920s. Focusing attention on the so-called sporting set of elite, white, leisure tourists, Young's argues that the shape of tourism represented an interplay between producers and consumers of the sporting life as Florida tourism shifted from hunting and fishing to more structured and rule-defined sport activities such as golf and tennis. Scott Kingdon accepts the early transition from hunting to golf without comment and examines a specific set of events that he interprets as exemplifying the interplay between Florida's obsession with golf and the land sales in the booming 1920s. Sport and real estate investment come together in what came to be called the Match of the Century, a two-day, 72-hole contest that pitted golfers Walter Hagen and Bobby Jones in a hole-for-hole match contest. The contest, sponsored by St. Petersburg investor Jack Taylor, who had married into the DuPont fortune, and Sarasota real estate developers Forrest and Perry Adair. Both sets of investor developers were heavily involved in promoting new housing opportunities, coupled with the opportunities for purchasers to play golf year-round. Their competition for sales was matched by the competition between their home cities of St. Petersburg and Sarasota and the contest between the professional and amateur golfers. Young's demonstrates the power of cultural transformation in shaping tourism, while Kingdon provides a compelling example of tourism tied to economic transformation. Now, Young's article focuses on 1920s tourism, but provides a glimpse at Florida tourism's origins as well, right? Yes, Young's begins where most narratives of Florida tourism begin, with the 1870s and Stowe's encouragement of northern winter visitors. The construction of reliable interstate railroads, the advice of doctors concerned about the health of patients prone to consumption, and the dry, warm weather supported the enthusiasm of promoters like Stowe. Once in Florida, tourists took boat trips on the slow-moving rivers like the St. John's to observe the subtropical foliage and hunt or fish from the security of the boat. In no time, tourists were coming to Florida for sport and health. Young's explores the gender differences in attitudes toward this 19th century form of sport. Men enthused about their ability to shoot alligators and panthers from the deck of the boat, so much so that the rise in the number of hunters and the accuracy of their aim began to have an adverse effect on the animal population along popular tourist routes. The same could be said for fishing. For men, the objective was to snag the most and the biggest fish, 
Women hunted and fished too, but they were appalled by what they viewed as boorish behavior by the men. From their perspective, the goal of hunting and fishing was to provide food. We know their views from the letters and diaries both men and women wrote. Women were not only writing about their behavior of their male companions, they vocalized their positions, calling men out for what they considered an abuse of nature and good behavior. Did the objections of the women influence the shift in Florida tourism? Not quite. The big hunts continued, but society shifted its attention elsewhere, and while tourists continued to come to Florida for sport and health, sport transformed to embrace the new tourist resorts, large hotels with tennis courts and golf courses, for a more sedate and less noisy, if no less competitive, sporting life. In 1887, Youngs tells us winter residents of St. Augustine organized the inaugural Tropical Tennis Tournament. In subsequent years, tennis tournaments appeared at winter resorts across the state. Other sports for the elite included fishing, sailing, shooting, baseball, motoring, and bicycling, but nothing matched golf after its introduction to Florida in 1895 when St. Augustine developed a three-hole course. The competition for the best golf course was on. Two years later, Henry Flagler commissioned Scottish golfer Alexander Findlay to lay out a nine-hole course, and Henry Plant followed with the hiring of Scottish professional John Duncan Dunn to plan, build, and operate courses for the West Coast Railroad. The founding infrastructure was in place by the turn of the century, and a series of professionally developed courses and tournaments followed, some associated with hotel resorts and others at new country clubs that included as members elite winter visitors and wealthy year-round residents. By focusing on golf, Youngs was also able to argue that the sporting set expanded their circle of acquaintances from interactions between Florida residents and northern winter visitors to include an international component that came to Florida for the winter to play golf, including a well-known Japanese golfer. As Young concludes, by the time the boom in Florida turned to bust, the state's realtors and developers had permanently established the idea of associating golf with the Florida lifestyle. Kingdon's article has a provocative title, as you mentioned, Match of the Century. What does he add to the Florida history of golf? Kingdon expands and complicates the history of golf in the 1920s in two ways. First, he shifts the focus from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast and expands the geography of the sporting set. Second, he explores the relationship between the 1920s land boom and golf more fully than Young's did. Kingdon demonstrates the precarious finances of the boom investors even as they underwrote the extravagant golf event he historicizes. The match of the century occurred in the spring of 1926 and pitted the leading professional golfer in the U.S. and perhaps the world, Walter Hagen, against the leading amateur, Bobby Jones. Both men were employed by the two real estate investor developers. Hagen was the golf pro for Taylor's Pasadena development in St. Petersburg, and Jones worked as assistant sales manager for Whitfield Estates in Sarasota, a position that protected his amateur status. The contest was for 72 holes, 36 holes at each of the two courses. Each hole was a separate contest, and the golfer who won the most holes won the contest. 
The contest received worldwide attention, and the two developers used the event to sell real estate. Hagen won the event that was witnessed by more than 2,000 people over the course of two days in late February and early March. But the Florida land boom was ending, and first Jack Taylor and then the Adairs lost their investments. The Whitfield Estates property was finally taken over by a group of Sarasota businessmen in the 1930s. Youngs and Kingdon introduce us to a complex interplay of cultural and economic transitions in the early 20th century that shaped Florida tourism and continues to influence it today. Indeed. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. It went straight down the middle Where it wound up is a riddle But it went straight down the middle This is Florida Frontiers. Tom Touchton has an extensive collection of Florida maps on display at the Tampa Bay History Center. Holly Baker has more. The Tampa Bay History Center in Tampa, Florida, houses the Touchton Map Library and Florida Center for Cartographic Education that contains thousands of maps, charts, and other documents of Florida from the 16th century to the early 21st century. It's the only cartographic center in the southeastern United States. Thomas Touchton, one of the founders of the Tampa Bay History Center, donated more than 5,000 Florida maps from his personal collection to the Tampa Bay History Center, making possible the establishment of the Touchton Map Library and Florida Center for Cartographic Education. I recently talked with Thomas Touchton when he stopped by the Library of Florida History to take a look at our extensive map collection. He told me that his interest in Florida maps began in London, England, nearly 40 years ago. Our map collecting began uh, 39 years ago when my wife and I were in London for her 40th birthday. And we went to a neighborhood antique fair, and I was always looking for books. But there were no book dealers, but there was a young map dealer with some maps pinned on the walls. And I asked him what he did, and he said, I sell maps. And I said, who buys maps? Uh, and he didn't have any other customers, so he spent about an hour talking with me about maps, and I was clearly hooked, and I began collecting Florida maps the next day and have been collecting Florida maps for 39 years. Many of the maps, charts, atlases, and other cartographic materials in the Touchdown Map Library's collection are digitized and available to view on the Tampa Bay History Center's website. It is called the Touchton uh, Map Collection, and it is in the map library at the Tampa Bay History Center in Tampa. And the uh, Tampa Bay History Center has been very fortunate to get a couple of conservation grants from Hillsborough County that we have used to digitize all of the collection and to put the maps on the Tampa Bay History Center's website so someone can go to the Tampa Bay History Center website and put your cursor over exhibits and then scroll down and you'll have an opportunity to view 
the map collection, and there are almost 6,000 images on that website. I asked Thomas Touchton which map in the collection is his favorite. As to favorites, oh my goodness, well, it's like which of your children do you love the most? I have coastal charts and plans of developments that did not happen and plans of developments that did happen and maps of theme parks and railroads and highways and air control lanes in the sky and town plans and I think Maybe my favorite map is an 1861 bird's eye view of Florida by a man named John Bachman. And uh, it is as if you are looking at the state of Florida from, oh, I guess 20 or 30 miles in the air, except John Bachman in 1860 61 couldn't do that. So he had to have in his mind what all of Florida looked like, and he put that in, as I mentioned, what is called a bird's eye view that I think is one of the most interesting and beautiful maps of all of them. The Tampa Bay History Center was established in 2009 by the Hillsborough County Board of County Commissioners. Today, the Tampa Bay History Center includes three floors of permanent and temporary exhibition galleries exploring 12,000 years of Florida's history. Thomas Touchton. History does not stop at county boundaries. And when Hillsborough County itself was first formed in 1834 by the Florida legislature, it constituted some or all of what is 22 counties today. So the history that is exhibited and taught at the Tampa Bay History Center is about the greater Tampa Bay area, and of course that includes Pinellas County and Hernando and Pasco County and Polk County and Manatee and Sarasota County. So a number of counties are really part of the story we tell, but the museum is located in downtown Tampa, right across the street from the Amelie Arena, which is where the Tampa Bay Lightning plays its hockey games, and there is a lot of development going on around it, and it is operating very successfully, and our approval rating from our visitors is like 95% or something like that. People really like it, and for the first time, really, in the Tampa area's history, there is a history museum where artifacts can be given and education programs can be made available to school students. So there, there's a lot going on there, and I encourage everyone to visit. To learn more about the Tampa Bay History Center and the Touchton Library and Florida Center for Cartographic Education, go to tampabayhistorycenter.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always find us at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.